All right, we're not always going to get to go this slow through the book of Acts, but in the beginning, I'm really thankful that we have been able to go slow. And we are looking at this passage that Scott read for us. Uh, it's great hearing his voice up here again, isn't it? Uh, that Scott read for us from verses 12 through the rest of the chapter. And I want to ask you a question. What does Christianity have that no other religion has? What does Christianity have that no other religion has? What are the results of having that specific thing? And then how is that manifest in our lives? That's, that's what I simply want to talk with you about. What does Christianity have that no other religion has? To, to get the import of that question, that question that for you will answer the question, why would I be interested in Christianity over anything else? Maybe you're seeking today. Um, you'd have to look at the verses that precede this verse. From verses 6 all the way down through verse 11, we see this picture of Jesus who was portrayed by Luke, claimed by Luke, professed by Luke to have been alive after his death, that he was raised from the dead that Jesus Christ was alive. For 40 days, we're told that he walked among his disciples. And we are told that while he walked among them, he opened the scriptures to them and showed them from the beginning to the end of the entirety of the Old Testament how they were written about him, that Jesus was alive. And then in those verses, uh, against all belief, against everything that you would have expected, this Jesus rose from the earth and ascended into heaven in bodily form. That is the profession of Luke. To Theophilus, another Greek who may or may not have even been a believer at this point, but this is the profession that Luke gives because he knows on this profession hangs everything. The resurrected and the ascended Jesus. Christianity is nothing without the resurrection. If you want to read a great example of how the Apostle Paul could talk about Christianity being gutted of all of its power without the resurrection, read 1 Corinthians 15, a letter that Paul wrote to Corinthian Christians, and he said, look, if the resurrection never happened, you're the most to be pitied. You're the most to be pitied. But then he goes on and says, but indeed, the resurrection did happen. Over 500 people witnessed it. And Luke here is writing, and you can read the beginning of both Luke and the beginning of Acts. And you can see that Luke writes as a historian theologian, as an evangelist to Theophilus, and says the resurrection happened. That happened. So what does Christianity have that no other religion has? In this context, we understand that what we have is a risen and a reigning Savior. We have a risen and a reigning Savior. The key to Christianity, the power of Christianity, the force of Christianity, the value of Christianity from start to finish is that we have a Savior who was raised from the dead and who is reigning in heaven even now. Thus the Apostle Paul says you've got to look at the ascension. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with the resurrection. The resurrection is proof of what is offered to you, forgiveness. It's proof of that forgiveness. You go, how does that work, Bradley? It works like this. Jesus, who John the Baptist identified as there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, Jesus came to fulfill in reality the shadow of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which is another's blood shed 
for your sin and for the sin of the world. And Jesus' blood was shed for ours. But the amazing thing is that his blood was shed for us in all of his perfection, and he defeated death. And he rose again from the dead because the price has been paid and death is no longer the end. Thus, resurrection is imperative to Christianity, as is the ascension. The ascension that Jesus didn't just disappear from the disciples and they didn't go, where did he go? But Jesus, in these verses, rose on clouds. And you go, Bradley, do you believe this? And I want you to know, I do believe it. I believe it. Is it hard to believe? Absolutely it's hard to believe. Have I ever seen it happen before? I have never seen it happen. I bear witness to those who did see it happen. That's what this book's about. They saw it happen. And they were met by two figures who said, why are you staring here, stand, standing here staring up in the heaven? This Jesus, whom you have seen ascend into heaven, will return just as he has come. You see, what Christianity has that no other religion has is a risen and a reigning Savior. And what that gives you is what all of us in this room wants, whether you profess to be a Christian or not. Do you want to know what that is? It gives you and me confidence. Confidence. We're going to see in these verses the confidence that these disciples have. And you've got to recognize that this is the transformation that took place in their lives. These are the disciples who only a month ago, at the very cross of Christ, they were filled with such fear and doubt that they just ran in every direction just to get away quick enough. But now you see these disciples transformed. They have seen the resurrected Jesus and they have seen him ascend. And the result in them is confidence. And I want to show you how that result comes from a risen and a reigning Christ. Because it comes in two parts. It comes in confidence in God's sovereign control of the past is the first thing that we see. All right? God's comp or their confidence in God's sovereign control of the past. It opens up in verse 12 with this statement. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew. And Scott did a great job reading it. You read it. And if you know the book of Luke, these names are all written in the book of Luke, except for whom? One name is missing, right? The reason this list is giving you is given to you is because there is something that is overtly obvious <clears throat> as these disciples come together. Jesus was betrayed by one of us. This Jesus whom we have seen is resurrected and now we have seen ascended, he was betrayed by one of us. And Luke doesn't dodge the harder parts of Scripture. He doesn't. He doesn't dodge what may be seen as failure and may be seen as how in the world would you defend this? 
Luke goes right after it. And Luke opens up in verse 15 through Peter's voice and listen to what Peter said. In those days, Peter stood up from among the brothers. And you can read as well as I can down there in the bottom that it, that it can mean brothers and sisters here. That in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. And he says this. Listen to his confidence. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. It was necessary, he says, that the scripture be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who, wo- who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, if you look at this passage, 909, there's a parenthesis, and Luke writes to Theophilus. Remember, Luke's Greek and Theophilus is Greek. And Luke writes this parenthetical statement. Now, listen. This man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst out in the middle, and his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Alkendama, that is, the field of blood. Luke explains to Theophilus what happened with Judas, and then it picks back up in verse 20 with Peter speaking, For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his camp become desolate. And let there be no one to dwell in it. Here, Peter uses one of the Psalms that Jesus used himself as many as five times when he was walking on the earth. Psalm 69 to communicate what he was going to go through, who he was. And Peter goes to that Psalm. Now look, I don't know if Jesus taught this to Peter during those 40 days or if Peter began to realize what Jesus was saying as Jesus taught him, read the scriptures through the lens of me, Peter. But Peter read Psalm 69 and he proclaimed to them, look, Jesus had to be betrayed this way because it was written right there, Psalm 69, King David, some 1,100 years before Christ died on the cross. He said his camp became desolate Let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take its place. Another psalm, Psalm 109. Again, Peter reading the Psalms of David that David wrote because the events of those psalms marked David's life. King David. But King David who would represent the one and eternal king, King Jesus, didn't know that these words would be fulfilled in Christ. But Peter, having listened to Jesus, or Peter even now having his eyes open to Scripture, as it says in Luke 24, identifies that these things had to take place. He's confident in Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and death. He's confident in God's sovereign control of the past. And so that leads him to God's sovereign control over the future and over their decisions. Listen to how it goes. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Peter said, look, this has to happen because it was written, it was prophesied. God is not only in sovereign control of the past, but he's in sovereign control of the future. 
And so it says that they put forward two men. One, a guy named Joseph, or, or they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. Have mercy. Three names. That's incredible, right? Maybe you have that many names as well. Here, it could be argued that he had this many names because of his social standing, because of how important of an individual he was. And they chose another guy, and Matthias. You go, well, Matthias has one name. I don't know. Justice and Matthias, they're put before him. They both met the criteria of having been with Jesus from his baptism by John all the way through to his ascension. Here were the two that were qualified to be in this place. And then listen to what he did. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Because the apostles were competent, they had seen Jesus' resurrection, they had been with him for those 40 days, they witnessed his ascension, the result of which was confidence in God's sovereign control of past events and of future events. They entrusted themselves to God. Now they made a decision by casting lots. You could think about it by rolling dice. You could think about it by flipping a coin, right? We saw that coin flip last week. It meant a lot, didn't it? It meant a whole lot that that coin flip happened the way it did in overtime. This is the overtime for Matthias and Joseph, right? This is the coin toss. But what does it illustrate? You read it in Peter's prayer. Lord, you know, and you're the one in sovereign control. Now here's what happens with the book of Acts. It's a historical book, much like 1st and 2nd Kings in the Old Testament. And just because you read something that happens in 1st and 2nd Kings, just because you read something that happens in Acts, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily the way it ought to be done moving forward, right? We're going to see a lot of that as we look through the book of Acts. We're going to see it next week as we talk about Pentecost and what we ought to expect to be the normal way that God works. And what are exceptional ways in redemptive history? You know that the coming of the Holy Spirit is an entire change of an epoch of, of, of redemptive historical narrative. But here what we see is they so entrusted the decision to God that no human being would pick another apostle, that they cast the dice, that they flip the coin, that they cast the lots, and Matthias was chosen. How does this confidence manifest itself? This is the end of the sermon. How does it manifest itself in their lives? Did anybody notice that I skipped a verse as I read through it? Did you notice that? Did you notice that I skipped this verse here, verse 14? After the naming of the disciples, this is what is read. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers and sisters. Verse 14. What does Christianity have that no other religion has? A risen and a reigning 
Savior. Think about the name of your church, Christ the King Church. Now, we added Newton so folks would know where we are, right? Christ the King Church, a risen and a reigning Savior. The result of that means that you can have confidence in both God's sovereignty in your past. Who doubts the decisions they've been making in their lives? Who wonders if the decisions that you have been making have brought you to a place that, oh no, we've really screwed up. The balance that we so precariously held in our family is now torn apart because so-and-so isn't present. Or whatever it is. Because you have a risen and a reigning Savior, you can have confidence in God's sovereign control of the past and in His sovereign control of your future decisions. His sovereign control. And so how does that manifest itself in our lives? You see, this is either unique to the first church in Acts or It is the paradigm for all churches, which is it? That they would be all together united, as it says, with one accord here, it says, devoting themselves to prayer. This unanimity, this idea of everyone being on the same track came from this term that was a political term. You you know well what that means, right? There are two tracks in this country right now. And, and, and God help you if you try to go from one track or the other or find some place in between, right? It's just not happening for us right now in the United States. It is that concept of a single political track, this is the way it has to be, that explains this idea of unanimity among the disciples. They had seen the risen and the ascended Savior, and they said this changes everything in our lives. Everything's different now. And they were united in the reality that they worship a king who was living and ascended to the throne of heaven. It was what united them. What's interesting is this unanimity throughout the scripture can be traced and it is always in the result of a gift from God to the praise of God. That's what this unanimity is about. It's usually in result or always in result from a gift from God that results to his praise. That's how this term is used. It's used again in Acts 2 when it says that over 3,000 people came and responded to Peter's sermon and put their faith and trust in Jesus. And it says that all the Christians were together, united as one. That's what this picture is. Having one focus of your life We've often laughed about the pews in which we sit, haven't we? We've often said we come in and we slip into our tiny kingdoms and we shut the door and we worship Jesus and the passing of the peace. We open our tiny drawbridges and we walk out and we shake and pass in peace and then we come back in and we say to ourselves, how is what we're going to learn today going to help us in our tiny kingdom? But you see, that's not what the disciples were about here. That's not what this group of 120 was about. They were about a unanimous direction, a unanimous focus. We see it in Acts 4, after the disciples had been imprisoned and beaten, and they come back, and unanimously they join their voices together 
And what's interesting is the Apostle Paul uses it in what's going to be our benediction today when he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. The same word. You see, this unanimity is not something that is unique to the early church. It is the gift that God gives his people, the church. It's the gift. It is the gift. And it's not just this unanimity, but it is also that in their unanimous focus, in their singleness of mind, they devoted themselves to prayer. Do you see that there? With all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Jesus modeled this for his disciples, didn't he? Devotion and prayer, consistency in prayer. Jesus sometimes, when he had a big decision, stayed up all night long to pray. What do you do when you can't sleep? Are you like me? Do you go get a hot toddy so that maybe you can go to sleep a little bit faster? Do you pump yourself with melatonin so maybe that'll help you go to sleep? Do you, do you make other decisions say, I just have to sleep? I... I work hard to go to sleep. I'm ashamed to stand before you and tell you how many nights I have stayed up through the night praying. Persistent, devoted in prayer. But Jesus not only modeled this, he taught this kind of prayer. In Luke 11, when he teaches the, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, he actually gives a parable after it that encourage persistence. Knock, ask, seek. Depend on me every day. Persistence, right? And not only that, but in another place in Luke, the 18th chapter, he gives the parable of the persistent widow. And do you know what Luke says about Jesus telling this parable? So that you might always pray and never cease. <laughs> this is what Jesus said. And we see this prayer in Acts 1 here, in Acts 2 at the end, in Acts 6 when the elders have said we can't stop being devoted to prayer. We see it throughout the early church. But again, this isn't unique to the early church. Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. He writes to the church in Colossae, and he says, continue steadfast in prayer. Continue steadfast in prayer. You see, what we have is a risen and an ascended king. A king who is enthroned. And what that means for you and me is that we are forgiven. Somebody sent a YouTube clip to me this week. Do you guys like Jonathan Banks? He's the guy that, for me, was in Breaking Bad. I, I, I love that, you know, that show because there was just so much reality in it of, of the human heart. Maybe not reality in human life, hopefully not in human life, but in the human heart. And, and here in this scene with Jonathan Banks, it's actually a scene from ER. 
And if I remember ER correctly, for those of you all who have no idea what ER was, children, it's like your parents' version of Grey's Anatomy. But that doesn't even really work because all of Grey's Anatomy is already over. And you're, if you watch that, which, ask your parents, I don't know about that. But, you, you know, it, it's old. It's in the 90s. And here's Jonathan Banks in the 90s. And he's this guy who's on his deathbed with cancer. And he has had a job of putting people to death in the prison. And Jonathan Banks is there and asks for a chaplain to come in. And he says, he says, I need you to assure me that there is forgiveness. I need you to assure me. And this chaplain looked at him and she said, you know something, forgiveness and guilt, it's hard to understand. And maybe you just feel guilty and maybe you need to let it go. And he finally looked at her and he beat the table and he said, send me in a real chaplain because I'm dying and I want to know someone who believes in God and in hell. And is there hope for me? Is there forgiveness? And listen, you guys. Luke wrote this so that we would know that we have a risen Savior and that forgiveness is real. And if you believe that, the result of that is confidence in a God who is in sovereign control of the past and in sovereign control of the future. And that will manifest itself among us when we, the church, we, us, us, when we, with unanimity, unanimously, devote ourselves to prayer, as Luke taught, as Luke recorded Jesus teaching, our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. When we manifest that, we will know that the penny has dropped. the penny of the reality that we have a risen and a reigning Savior. Now look, that's not always going to be on Wednesday morning. I know you can't make it to Wednesday morning. I sure hope that Wednesday morning grows. Wednesday morning prayer, I hope it grows. But you guys, we have crafted other opportunities to pray. The women's Bible study, the men's Bible study, community groups, youth group, they're all over. But I want you to know what will motivate you in unanimity in prayer is to know that we have a God who is in sovereign control of the past and who is in sovereign control of our future. Therefore, we can cry out to him. The writer of Hebrews writes it this way. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help and find grace 
to help in time of need. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.